0: Am I concerned that we're going to go into recession? I am. I'm not concerned that it's going to be global financial crisis, some horrible, deep, long-lasting recession, at least near term. But I, I, I would be surprised if the Fed is able to thread the needle and get it just right. But I can tell you that the market rally this year is at least in part to the view that the Fed will thread that needle.
1: Welcome to the latest installment of Currently, the podcast that brings you the week's current events in finance, business, and technology with insight from the experts. Today, your host Ryan Pallotta is joined by industry expert and the author of The Rosen Report, Eric Rosen. Ryan and Eric kick things off by talking about Wall Street legend Carl Icahn, with Eric recounting a memorable dinner he shared with the man Gordon Gekko was, in part, based upon. Eric gives his thoughts on an expected interest rate hike of 25 basis points and talks about the squeeze consumers are starting to feel with auto and credit card delinquencies on the rise and credit card and mortgage balances at an all-time high. He then talks about a greater than zero chance of the US government being temporarily unable to pay its debt and the knock-on implications of that. Lastly, Eric shares why he thinks EV goals are unrealistic and why the government should be enticing big oil companies with a carrot rather than beating them with a stick. At Prometheus, you can get insights directly from top financial professionals like Eric and access institutional-grade alternative funds more easily than ever before. Go to our website prometheusalts.com and get started today. And now, enjoy our talk with Eric Rosen. Eric, thank you
2: so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have a conversation about everything that's going on in the markets this week. I love your newsletter, read it all the time, and really want our viewers to, and our audience to kind of hear some of your thoughts. First of all, Eric is going to be hosting Prometheus's Investor Day event, which is February 9th. I'm very excited for you to moderate that conversation, talking to three really super smart industry leading experts that we have, Kyle Bass, Jordy Visser, and Robert Mullen taking part in this panel. So thank you again for hosting that on February 9th, and uh, really excited for people to listen to that conversation that we have there. You're probably the best person around to host it. Um, first off, you you did a recent newsletter about one of my heroes, uh, someone who you know recently had a documentary on HBO come out, Carl Icahn. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you wrote in your newsletter about that, your dinner with Carl, uh, how that went. Uh, maybe, you know,
0: were you always a fan of his? Like, what did you think about his? And how did that dinner go? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks. Always good to be with you, Ryan. And I'm excited about the upcoming Prometheus event with three really impressive uh, folks in the markets. So I I wrote a newsletter about Carl, and I had dinner with Carl Icahn in 2012, so about 10 years ago. And I have always been a huge Carl Icahn fan. He is one of the best investors in the last 50 years. At one point, he had 31% annualized returns for 40 years of his career I haven't I haven't seen his date in the last handful of years but he and Stan Druckenmiller to me are at the real the, the peak of of investors in terms of their long-term track record and what they've accomplished so I have a lot of respect for him as an investor and I had a very special dinner I was speaking with Carl about potentially joining his team to run some money for Carl Icon and we had a dinner to talk about it and how that might work out And I was just blown away by, at the time, I think he was 76 years old. We had dinner and I almost couldn't eat my dinner. I was laughing so hard. His stories and the vivid recall that he had for a 76-year-old man about deals that he negotiated with boards and lawyers and CEOs and and the threats that he made to get deals done and to, to get, he's been an activist investor for most of his career and to get what he thought was the right outcome for the company and for shareholders. And he's just... Very funny, incredibly bright, super successful, and it was a very special memory for me to to have time with him for a couple of hours, and it was just great.
2: Yeah, I love that. He, you know, I, I don't think he loves the term, but he was kind of the original guy that they coined the term corporate raider. Yes, after. Um, what do you think that kind of has has changed from you know, core like activism investors? From when you know, he was prominent in the 90s and 2000s and even the 80s to activist investors now. How has that kind of changed in your mind to how people kind of act as activist investors now? We have people like Bill, the Bill Ackmans who kind of act as activists a
0: little bit. Um,
2: has that changed much since
0: Carl? I'm hardly the expert. What I would say is the way he told his stories and the books that I've read about it. It was far more combative, and it's not that the new folks. Uh, we've seen somebody like a Dan Loeb or a Bill Ackman. A S- uh, Starboard has been an activist. I think it's a little bit less. I'm going to burn your company down, and more a little bit more uh, friendly than it was in the past. You know, from some of the from the stories I had heard before I was really on Wall Street. You know, in, in the early 80s and 80s and early 90s, I got into Wall Street in 1992. And so, um, you know, I think it was it was far more combative, and uh, a lot a lot more nasty between the activists, or as you said, corporate raider, and uh, the 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 board or the CEO. And I think now, I mean, Carl's still doing it today. I, in the last couple of years, I believe he had a dinner with Tim Cook, telling him that he needed to pay dividends or buy back shares to distribute some of those. Huge cash positions. I forgot what they were, but it was hundred billion or some big number. And so they're they're still uh, they're still involved. And I think he's partially responsible for some of the outperformance of Apple stock. I mean, he did it with Netflix. He did it with Apple. And again, he's eighty six years old now. So he has uh, really done it in decades and over decades. He's been very very impressive. And so I, I guess I I do regret not not trying to push harder to join him for a few years. I just think I would have been a much better investor. Had I seen him up close and personal for a few years, but I decided to launch a hedge fund uh, instead. But I, I often think about, hey, maybe I should have gone work for him for a couple of years and I would I bet I would have learned a lot and had some fun.
2: Wow, that's a hard opportunity to pass up working directly under one of the greatest investors um, of our time. What would
0: you say during that dinner would be like one key takeaway that you learned from him? I think what I saw, and I don't I don't see this often in in, in a lot of people, especially at the age of 76. I was shocked by his vivid recall of what happened, who he spoke with, when he spoke with him, recalling the conversation almost verbatim, it seemed, but it's his confidence. When he feels, given his vast experience in investing and influencing outcomes, when he has confidence that his decision is the right decision, he was unwavering. And I think human nature is one thing to have confidence, but then when somebody pushes back, you might question your decision or question your argument, it doesn't seem like he did a lot. And I don't mean that in a negative connotation. I mean it in a positive one. But I I felt like he was so confident that his decision to ask a board to pay a dividend, sell an entity, uh, let go people, whatever, whatever angle he was angling for, he felt a great deal of confidence that his recommendation was the right one to influence the best outcome for the shareholder, and I was just taken by his 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 unwavering confidence.
2: You need that confidence, I think. I guess to wage the battles that he did, I think he had some really famous ones with Nabisco and TWA Airlines, um, even back in the day. I'm sure he had a lot of great stories about some of those things.
0: I think back then they used a lot of. Uh, profanities and were a bit more aggressive. And I think uh, the activist investors today try to be a little bit more professional and polished in in their interactions with boards. But uh, back then, it definitely sounded like it was a little bit more uh, rough and tumble.
2: This week, we saw stocks sink, well, at least today, Monday. We saw stocks sink as markets braced for a big week with the Fed and earnings coming up this week. So I wanted to get your thoughts a little bit about you know what you are anticipating this week. We've got like some really big tech stocks reporting this week with Apple, Amazon, Meta, Google. Um, wh- what, do you, what do you think is happening going into this week and that is seeing us kind of see stocks kind of fall flat right now?
0: Well, listen, we've been on a great tear. The markets are up really sharply uh, in the in the first month of the year. We've had a big outperformance by the hardest hit stocks uh, Were growth stocks and tech were, we're beaten up last year disproportionately to value which outperformed for the first time in a while. And now we're seeing a little bit of reversal where some of these techs like Tesla was up 60%. I didn't see what they did today, but Tesla was up 60% uh, year to date through Friday or 59% anyway. And so this week is the Fed and I'm expecting 25 basis points. The Fed and most of the Fed presidents have been coming out in recent weeks saying we still need to get inflation under control. We still need to aggressively raise rates. I think there's fears that if they don't aggressively raise rates, they're going to cause uh, inflation to come back and rear its ugly head again. Even worse, with China opening up, you know, they've been closed with, the, with zero uh, COVID policy in China, as they're coming back uh, to market or co- opening back up, that there's a little bit of fear what that implication can be. I watched a, a very good interview with Barry Sternlicht, another investing hero of mine on the real estate front, who I think is a, is a very brilliant uh, investor who's who's done very well and he was very critical of the fed as I have been if you read my my newsletters I was screaming that the fed had left rates zero too long quantitative easing on for too long well housing markets were euphoric they were buying back tens of billions of bonds and I don't think they should have been and they said inflation was transitory when I thought many people thought otherwise and I fear that the fed is going to raise rates too much I, I really am seeing the consumer slow down pretty dramatically and I'm, it's, it's a concern of mine as we're starting to see auto delinquencies rise, credit card delinquencies rise, credit card balances at all time high, well rates are rising, we still have inflation and the consumers are getting squeezed. And so it's a fear of mine. And I do think they're going to raise 25 basis points. But I also think that the Fed is going to be put in a tough position over the next, let's call it three to six months, where I fear that the consumer will continue to show deterioration as they have in recent months. And it's going to be harder for them to raise to where they want to, and I worry inflation will be a little bit sticky. Not get that back to two percent, but be at three or four percent. And I worry how much the Fed will raise rates to get it back
2: to two percent. How do you think the market will react to that um, this week? And what do you think? What do you think the Fed will do on Wednesday?
0: I think twenty-five basis points is baked in. I, I didn't see the the for- futures today, but as of Friday, it was pretty much baked in that it was going to be a twenty-five basis point raise. Uh, you know, so I think that's what the market expects. I think if, if, they ra- if they raise 50, the market would sell off dramatically. I would be shocked if they don't raise at all in light of the Fed stance and a half a dozen Fed governors, Fed presidents saying that we need to get inflation under control. You know, you have Apple earnings coming out Thursday. And there was a report I read suggesting this is the first time they expect revenue declines other than the uh, the pandemic quarter when no one could go out and shop. Uh, it was a quarter or two when when people were locked in their house. So it's another data point that the consumer is getting squeezed with all the things we talk about: inflation, uh, wages not keeping up with inflation, credit, record credit card debt, auto delinquencies, rising interest rates, rising mortgage balances, all those things. So I think Thursday's earnings report for Apple will be pretty interesting uh, to see how much lower their revenues went and what their forecast will be for twenty twenty three.
2: Do you think that's going to be across the board among these large cap tech stocks
0: um, where earnings might be a little bit disappointing to the street? Well, listen, I I think some interesting things have happened in the tech space. I believe Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, which I have been very supportive of for free speech, but also critical of in terms of the price he paid and the way he uh, played it and the way he paid for it and the way he structured it, I didn't think was great. But you saw him very quickly cut roughly half of the workforce. I think there were 7,500 employees, and he cut it down to roughly 3,500, 4,000. So he's cut the workforce in half. And I think his aggressive cutback in employees has given others like Meta, who have been very reluctant to cut. You've seen Google. You've seen Amazon and Netflix. You've seen a lot of large tech companies start announcing layoffs. And they hired very aggressively during the pandemic. And now they're starting to cut people. And I think that is something that you're going to see. I think they got outsized and their expenses got outsized and their revenue growth is slowing. And uh, their ad growth is slowing at at Google and Meta and and others. And I think the result will be uh, more layoffs. And remember, these layoffs are higher paid people. So the numbers aren't that big. So it's not like millions and millions of people are getting laid off to impact the unemployment number. But the impact of laying off somebody who makes three hundred thousand dollars is much greater than when a layoff of a, a service worker, a blue collar worker who makes forty five thousand dollars. So, um, although the the unemployment rate won't jump dramatically, I, I think the impact of these layoffs is going to be harder. And previously, last year when somebody got laid off, it only took an engineer or computer scientist, a, a computer uh, programmer, a few months to get a job, and I think it's going to take longer going forward because not only are people not hiring, a lot more of the tech companies are laying off. And I think that is one of my concerns over the next six months or definitely in 2023.
2: I want to go back and touch on your the consumer spending kind of issue that you talked a bit about there. Consumers are kind of cracking under pressure here. The yeah. rising interest rates seem to be lagging behind consumer uh, spending kind of data that we've been seeing because we saw consumers were spending quite a bit and they weren't kind of slowing down based on like the Fed really wanting them to kind of just stop spending so the economy would stop growing as much. What do you think is going to happen to the broader economy and how are na- investors going to be able to navigate this? Could we see a deeper recession because um, consumers are going to be suffering quite a bit more, this with the layoffs, with more delinquent credit card debt uh, because they've been borrowing to spend right now? Some people may get laid off and weren't expecting
0: that. Um, you know, Can you paint a picture for me of what it's going to look like on the broader economy? What's interesting, and let's just take autos and what happened and- 2020 and 2021, there was no new car deliveries. And so if people wanted to buy a car, they had to buy a used car and used car prices were Mannheim used car index was going up parabolically. It was going up exponentially uh, in, in 2020 and 2021. And so people who needed a new car, for example, my wife's car was totaled. She, somebody hit her car. We needed to buy a car. We massively overpaid for a car because you couldn't get them. And we paid, we, 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 we got our insurance money from the car. And so we paid cash for the car. Uh, but, and by the way, the car was up almost 50% from the model we bought three years prior. It was a Tesla. Uh, and so What's interesting is a lot of buyers bought cars at inflated prices, borrowed money to buy them, and now the Mannheim used car index crashed in December. It was the biggest monthly decline in history, I believe, and it's down again in January. I haven't seen the final numbers, but the mid-month numbers were down. And so you think about it, you bought a car, let's just say you paid 50,000 for a car that was really worth 35 or 40, and you borrowed 40,000 against it, and now used car prices are crashing. Your car is now worth less than what you owe. And so that that's a problem. and I think that is a small example of, 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 of what I'm fearful of. And so yes, uh, savings rates have crashed from in April of 2020 it was almost 34 percent. It's at two and a half percent today. Uh, the savings rates are down trillions of dollars over the last couple of years, 2020 everybody's locked in their house. no one can go out and spend and stimulus checks were coming in in, in the mailbox with some regularity. Those have ended and everybody's out, pent up demand, going on vacation, going out to dinner, uh, going uh, and, and spending money. And as you pointed out rightly, Ryan, the consumer had to borrow to do it. And credit card debt is at all time highs while interest rates are rising. So the cost to borrow is up. So how does this all play out? I'm concerned. I listened to what Barry Sternlich said and I, I agreed with 80% of what he had to say. And that is, he thinks we're going into recession. I don't think this is a global financial crisis, recession, banks are in much better stead. And there's a lot more equity in housing today, given the massive run-up in housing relative to 2008. But I am concerned that the Fed is going to overplay their hand, raise rates too much. And as you touched on, there is a delay between when you raise rates and you start quantitative tightening before it's fully reflected in the economy. And it takes some months to get there. And I think we're starting to see that trickle in uh, with the consumer retail sales down, auto delinquencies rising, uh, credit card credit cards rising. Discovery Discover credit cards came out last week, and the stock was down pretty substantially. I don't recall if it was ten percent, um, but it's down substantially. Not because of the trailing uh, delinquencies and charge offs, but what their projection was for 2023, which was up dramatically. And Discover is a credit card, which is kind of low to middle income, I believe. And so that's a good picture of the struggle, or at least Discover's implied view of the struggle of the US consumer. So am I concerned that we're going to go into recession? I am. I'm not concerned that it's going to be global financial crisis, some horrible, deep, long-lasting recession, at least near term. But I, I I would be surprised if the Fed is able to thread the needle and get it just right. But I can tell you that the market rally this year is, lar- is is at least in part to the view that the Fed will thread that needle.
2: So given that information, how do you think investors will fare and navigate, especially when we look at maybe hedge funds and uh, you know alternative investments? How do you think those managers or how would you manage your portfolio if you were still managing money um, during something like this?
0: I'd still be a little cautious. I mean, I think this rally caught people uh, surprised. I think the world was probably a little too negative uh, coming into the year. I was too. Um, and the thing that I'm excited about from for me as I manage my family office is the old ad- adage, Tina, there is no alternative. And that was the saying when I ran my hedge fund, stocks were the place to be because rates were interest rates were zero. You couldn't make money in corporate bonds. High yield bonds were yielding 5%. You couldn't make money... In, in 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 munis or treasuries. And so you had to go invest in stocks. And with the unprecedented rate rises in, in the history of the Fed, they've never risen rates this fast uh, to get uh, it to uh, move by 4% or more in such short order. And so um, now you can get 4% in plus in short dated treasuries and in good, good returns and munis again and money market funds. And so you don't have to be aggressively invested in stocks. I know a lot of people in fixed income have been pushed to take more risk than they otherwise wanted to because you couldn't get any income uh, or interest in in the in the fixed income markets, and now that's changed. So that's exciting. I am a little worried about the debt ceiling issue, and and, and uh, Jamie Dimon said it eloquently. I'm a big fan of his. I had the pleasure of working for him for a number of years, where he said we should never question the full faith uh, of the government's ability to pay. And we shouldn't use the debt ceiling as a trigger to get legislation passed or spending changes, even though he agrees that we're spending too much money uh, within the government and the deficits are too high. And so I am worried that with McCarthy's, the things that he had to give up to get elected speaker and uh, are are many, I think it's going to be at a cost. And I do worry that there is a temporary and i repeat temporary blip with uh, the 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 ability of the government to pay because the debt ceiling gets surpassed and the extraordinary measures are are run through by the treasury and what the implications are and i don't know what the secondary and tertiary effects are of that but i fear that there could be many from uh what happens to banks what happens to uh you know the uh money market funds that are generally a dollar. If, if short-dated treasuries drop and they have a lot of short-dated treasuries, you could see people lose money in money market funds. So I, I'm I'm a little bit worried about that. I'm not saying it's an 80% chance. I think it's a less than 5%, but it should be a 0% chance that the US government does not have the ability to pay its debt. And so anything over zero is concerning. And to me, there's something over zero right now with the divide between the Democrats and the Republicans, even though I do think that the amount of spending that we have and the massive deficits we've run, I believe the cumulative debt in the U.S. went from nine trillion in 2008 to 32 trillion plus in 2022. So you know <laughs> that in, in over in, in over 200 years we got nine trillion, and in you know 12 or 13, in 14 years we got another 24 trillion or 25 trillion. It's just it's concerning. So
2: the, the target, the F- the Fed wants to basically get inflation to 2%. How arbitrary is that number? And how realistic is it actually that we should get there to that number? And are they going to continue raising interest rates through 2023 until we get to that number?
0: The Fed, is I- his job is to manage inflation and unemployment. And I, I watched, I- I'm talking about all my heroes. We talked about Carl Icahn. We're talking about Barry Sternlicht. Uh, and I watched Stan Druckenmiller, who's another investing hero of mine, who has done so many famous trades and had, I believe, a 32% annual return for something like 30 years. I watched him interviewed about a month ago where he talked about the stupidity of the Fed's decision. I believe he said that inflation was running at 1.7% and the Fed wanted to get inflation to 2%. So they did all these extraordinary measures of of keeping interest rates low and quantitative Uh, easing where they were buying mortgage bonds and treasury bonds to spur spending. And for that measly 30 basis points of inflation to get to 2%, they created massive inflation that turned out to not to be transitory, that that created massive trillions of dollars of losses in the stock market. And and his statement, and I, I hadn't thought of this, I don't want to take pride of authorship because it's really Druckenmiller's, but I agree with him, is that for the Fed to get to this arbitrary 2% number? Because in history, we're not really at 2%. That's the goal. But whether we're at 180 or 220, does it really? is it is that little difference? Met? I understand if you're at 7% or at 1%. But if you're either side of 2%, I, I think in hindsight, the Fed's decision to be so aggressive when we're so close to target proved to be a very damaging one for the economy globally and specifically in the United States. And and I thought Stan uh, was was very articulate and eloquent in, in the way he described that issue. So I, I I don't think we're still too high in inflation, and we have to come down. But I'm seeing inflation come down. When you look at the last six months annualized, inflation is largely in check. It's when you use the numbers from 12 months ago, 10 months ago, eight months ago, it's still high. And so I think over the next few months, you're going to see inflation continue to tick down, it never comes down at a rate fast enough for the Fed, and I appreciate what the Fed and Powell are trying to do, but make no mistake, they totally missed by keeping rates too low for too long in 2021, and I, I, they shouldn't have done that. And that, that's a big reason why we're in the predicament we are, in my opinion.
2: I'd love to shift gears for a second and talk a little bit about another post that you did in your newsletter. Um, you talked a little bit about big oil earnings preview and how some of the energy giants are probably going to smash their annual profits. Um, you know, there's I'll quote you here: President Biden, maybe you should consider the carrot and not the stick when pushing energy companies to invest. These decisions are multi-year and billions of dollars. Remember the Keystone Pipeline. These CEOs don't want to lose a ton of money. When minds are changed, no one was crying for energy companies when oil traded at thirty eight dollars a barrel, and they lost billions. At negative, 38. negative $8, thirty eight, negative thirty dollars, negative thirty eight dollars a barrel. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts there and what you think, what you're expecting um, when you start when we start to see energy earnings coming up?
0: Yeah. So, you know, energy is is obviously these these oil companies are very reliant on the price of oil, and they, they're, they're, they've they, they definitely been vilified. The oil industry has been vilified globally, largely in the US and Europe, but really globally for the environment and the harmful environment. So here are the numbers. So globally, we consume a little over 100 million barrels a day of oil. And the EIA is projecting another couple million barrel increase in 2023 as China comes back online. And With that, I mean, remember in 2020, there were no people flying. There were like 30, 50, 80, 100,000 people a day flying. Now we're back to over 2 million travelers a day checking through TSA in the United States. And so when you look at the oil consumption going the way it's going, while the strategic petroleum reserve has been depleted to levels from the early 80s, while we have a much bigger population than we did then, Cushing storage is down. OPEC warned this week that they don't have the ability to pump a lot of more oil. I believe that if I want a good outcome, I believe the carrot is far better than the stick. And you've seen Biden come out and say, we want to tax all your profits and excess tax on wealth uh, for oil companies and force you to do something Uh, in, in Europe, they're charging a wealth tax or an oil tax. For new wells drilled, and a a large oil energy company came out and said, "We're not going to drill new wells. If you're going to charge us because to drill new wells, we're not going to drill new wells." So I think the vilification of the industry is concerning. I own a Tesla. I've owned a Tesla for almost seven years. I am all for going green. I think it's a little bit unrealistic when you look at the percentage of cars in the United States. It's a couple percent of cars in the United States are electric. We've seen California mandate by 2030, all cars, new cars sold have to be EVs. I don't know if you saw this. I thought within three days of that announcement, Newsom came out and said, please don't charge your electric car. Our grids are under pressure, so you can't charge your electric car. I don't know how you get to work if you have only electric cars and you can't charge them. And so I know my wife charges her Tesla almost every day because the range is a few hundred miles, not a thousand miles. And I think we're very unrealistic about the rare earths that we have. And if you look at the studies, and I am hardly an expert here, but I look at the studies from respected scientists and the amount of cobalt and lithium and other rare earths that you need, there is no chance. And I repeat, no chance that we can get to the lofty goals that the environmentalists want to. And it's not that I don't want to. I would love every car to be EV in 10 years. I just don't think we have the grid power. I don't think we have the rare earth to do it. And we don't have the money to do it. And not only that, it mining these rare earths are very, very uh, expensive and challenging. I believe about 75% of the cobalt in the world comes from the Congo. And a Harvard professor just traveled the world to look at all the cobalt mines. And he uncovered children working by hand. And it's toxic material, cobalt. They dig by hammer to pull all, at all the ground. And so there's just no chance that you could have every car by 2030 as an EV sold. And I talk about that globally and we don't have the grids to support it. Yeah, there's no real there's no real plan around that. I don't think we've planned it out well, but make no mistake, I would like to see that happen. I just think it's unrealistic. And so what I think Biden and the administration should consider is... It doesn't. You don't have to lose a couple billion dollars more than once to know what you should and shouldn't do. The Keystone Pipeline was supposed to be go off. The, one of his first orders of business when he came into office was canceling the Keystone Pipeline. And so that would have led to about, a, I think, 800,000 to a million more barrels flowing this year from Canada to the United States, which would have been helpful in bringing the price of oil down. Because it's shocking how tight supply and demand is in oil. It's not like other than you, you know what happens when it's not tight is in in t- March of 2020 when the world locked down, oil went to negative 38 dollars a barrel because demand crashed because no one was flying, no one was driving their cars, and people were still producing supply. Well, we're always within balance within a half a million, a million barrels a day. If you get an incremental million barrels a day flowing, uh, that would have really put pressure down on oil. And you know to build on a, a, a liquid natural gas. So to 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 transport natural gas, it needs to be liquefied. These LNG facilities are many, many, many billions of dollars. And they're at least a five-year build. Some of them are seven or eight. Who wants to take the view to spend huge amounts of money over a five or seven-year period to get paid back over 20 years when the world is vilifying you for doing it? Because Europe could rely on us rather than relying on Russia and other places for their natural gas. And so I think if there was a plan that used a carrot rather than a stick, we'd get to the right answer. And I don't think it's threatening big oil and big energy companies every other day with a new threat. We're going to tax this and we're going to force you to do that. And we're gonna, I just don't think it's effective. And no one cried for oil companies when they lost tens of billions of dollars when oil was down negative 38. And over time, if you look at oil profitability, it's boom and bust. And so, you know, it's hard to make multi-year decisions when you don't feel that the uh the president and the government is supporting your long-term goals. And so, again, I wish we weren't relying on oil. I wish the world wasn't consuming 100 million plus barrels a day, but we are, and the EIA actually suggests we will be consuming more barrels of oil, I was shocked at this in 2050 than we're consuming now. I was shocked at that projection. I don't know how to project that myself. But so um you know, I think the world is in for a bit of hurt if we're relying on Cobalt, which is hard to find, and in, 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 in lithium and other rare earths, and a grid that needs massive hundreds of billions of dollars spent charging. When when my, my wife can't drive far because you got to charge it and you got to find a charger. And a lot of hotels don't have chargers. And so we use that car, we use a Tesla around town, not for long distance.
2: Yeah, we don't have a lot of infrastructure plans in place to make this a uh, sustainable goal. And I saw even like after that announcement, Porsche came out and said that they were working on some plans to be able to make a new type of fuel that was like liquid-based or water-based to allow internal combustion cars um, to be able to keep running um, without use of oil.
0: Yeah, but we have this infrastructure bill uh, that I believe they call it the inflation. There's an infrastructure bill and there's an Inflation Reduction Act, but the infrastructure bill was supposed to build a bunch of um, charging stations all over the country. But remember charging takes electricity. And I don't know if people appreciate this. The biggest input for electricity is natural gas. So most, you know, nuclear has been, has been vilified. Coal has been vilified. Natural gas has been vilified. You need natural gas to power much of the electricity in the United States. And so when you vilify the oil industry that produces natural gas, it makes it hard to create a lot more electricity if you don't have that to power it. Because, solar wind wave the cleanest forms are just a small part of what we're consuming in the United States and globally
2: well this is a great little preview for what people can expect on our prometheus investor day event that eric's going to be hosting so i'm excited for that a lot of these amazing insights are going to be shared during that event and eric is going to continue to keep creating content like this with us on a regular basis uh thanks man for joining us today and i uh, can't wait to talk more about uh, doing the live event and having everybody register to sign up and kind of see what the amazing things that you're going to talk about with Kyle, Jordy, and Robert.
0: Well, Ryan, it's always great to be with you. It's it's a lot of fun, and I too am looking forward to the event next week. And uh, you've got you've you've put together a very good uh, group of of investors, and I'm excited to hear what they have to say about the markets and the challenging times that uh, we're facing in them. So it's going to be a lot of fun to do.